0: Thank you, Belinda, for that very warm welcome and um, for the opportunity to uh, deepen the connections between the, Asa- uh, the Australian Centre for Health Law Research um, and Sydney Health Law. It's wonderful to come back and uh, meet old friends. I know many of you by by uh, personally and others by reputation, and so it's wonderful to be here. Um, I've called my presentation today Ken health legislation saved the world. And I've been asked to speak about a report that was published in January by the World Health Organization called Advancing the Right to Health, the Vital Role of Law. I'll talk in a moment about how the report came to be written. But the key message from the report is that there's enormous untapped potential for governments to use law effectively and powerfully to reduce health risks and to make communities uh, resilient. The report is completely unashamed in arguing that government action and leadership are critical to improving longevity and healthy life expectancy. The report takes a human rights perspective. It argues that law is essential to advancing the realisation of the right to health, which is uh, one of the rights in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights that Australia has ratified. But let me pause for a moment, because these days, the idea that we can govern our way to a healthier future is actually a highly contested statement. There's a lot more of it. They're about as excited uh, for an expansionary role for government in improving health. As for human rights, they're on the nose, too. In fact, the former prime minister, Tony Abbott, called for the abolition of the Australian Human Rights Commission a few weeks ago. I'm not sure this is a view that's shared by the Australian government, which is pursuing a seat on the 47-member UN Human Rights Council for the period 2018 to 20. To do that successfully, I suspect you shouldn't be abolishing the national body that's charged with championing, uh, charged with being the champion of human rights. The second reason that I want to pause is to locate the report within a simple framework that I use for making sense of health law. Like many of you, I got interested in health law through health care law or medical law. Um, that's what many Australian health lawyers focus on. Mental health law and public health law tend to be the poor cousins of medical law. Public health law, of course, is more interested in healthy public policies and in the health of populations uh, than in the health of individuals or in the regulation of health professionals. And then there's the field of global health or global health governance. And this includes not only international health laws, like the Framework Convention for uh, Tobacco Control, but the proliferation of soft law instruments, normative standards and reporting mechanisms and other processes that make up the global management of health risks. Cutting across all of these fields is an emerging field that I call law and health development, which is concerned with how law can strengthen health systems and improve the health of low and middle income countries. So, coming back to the report, one of the things that it does is illustrate how the reform of public health law can help to create the conditions for people to live healthy lives. In doing so, uh, this report has a strong focus on national laws, not just on international instruments. The content of this report evolved out of two international consultations in Rome and Cairo that were convened by the International Development Law Organisation. The Rome meeting identified the report as a priority for contributing to the field and the Cairo meeting identified many of the topics that the report should cover. And those topics ended up being uh, fairly broad. And this is the photo that ended up advertising the report And yet the reality is that it's increasingly environments like this that the law needs to serve. So having worked on this report over a number of years as its principal author, what strikes me is that law permeates our collective efforts to improve the health of populations in so many ways. For the remainder of my presentation, what I'd like to do is firstly give you a case study that emphasizes the importance and effectiveness of public health law as beneficiaries of first world health constraints in terms of human resources and material resources, or a government that is corrupt, or a government that is simply not interested in health. And secondly, I'd like to give you a case study that illustrates how countries are innovating in health law around the world. And in the time that remains, I'd like to briefly run you through one of the important thematic areas that public health law than tobacco control. In 2015, tobacco smoke killed seven. Point. It's this scene where a highly traumatised veteran, played by Christopher Walken, puts his life on the line in a roulette class of, of, you know, of dying due to smoking. You know, the odds of a smoker have given the tobacco industry a tremendous opportunity to frame itself as part of the solution. E-cigarettes come in a variety of forms. Big tobacco is gradually taking over this market and advertising them for all they're worth. The Blue brand, by the way, is owned by Imperial Tobacco, which is the world's fourth largest tobacco in the United States. It's now, you know, 16% um, of high school students have tried uh, e-cigarettes. Heated tobacco products are also on the rise, led by uh, this product, Icos, by Philip Morris. Unfortunately, in New South Wales, you know, my home state, um, unlike Queensland, the government has chosen not to extend that are potentially or currently smoke-free, potentially re nicotine use and cigarette use. means that people can vape on trains and buses, in schools, university classrooms, bars and cafes, childcare centres, even Parliament. I'm cynical, as you can tell, about harm reduction in tobacco control, but the point is that e-cigarettes are, are brilliant legitimation devices in mature markets where health concerns predominate. This is how the world's This is how the world's largest tobacco multinationals, which are domiciled in high-income countries, are winning market share in Indonesia. There's no need to push fancy. And in countries where tobacco control legislation is weak, children and adolescents begin smoking early in their lives. This is the two-and-a-half-year-old smoking baby that went viral on YouTube. The point is that this child is not unique. I've seen children three or four smoking, looking out the taxi window. It's always an interesting question in global health law. What's the most powerful thing that governments can do to reduce death and disability? And the answer is for governments to fully implement their obligations under the Framework Convention for Tobacco Control. If you want to save the world, good old-fashioned tobacco control legislation is the place to start. This is discussed in Chapter 13 of Advancing the Right to Health. The priority actions include uniformly high tobacco prices through high specific excise rates Uh, graphic and written disease warnings on tobacco packages, comprehensive ban on all advertising, promotion and sponsorship, bans on secondhand smoke, and very importantly, resisting tobacco industry interference in tobacco control laws and policies. Denying the tobacco industry access to government is a bit like stabbing it between the eyes. The most consistent message that I've received from talking, interviewing global tobacco executives around the world is that they want to be involved in tobacco control. They actually believe they're part of the solution. It's often said that Australia is a leader in tobacco control. We introduced plain packaging. We've introduced graphic health warnings. We've raised the tobacco excise and daily smoking has fallen. But tobacco is still one of the largest causes or preventable causes of early death in Australia and there's a lot more that we could do but aren't doing. Now in many ways the United States is not a jurisdiction you would look to for inspiration. In the US the First Amendment entrenches a right to tobacco advertising and this would eliminate many of the things that we've done here. Nevertheless, last year California raised the minimum purchasing age for cigarettes and e-cigarettes to 21. We know that the longer you can delay initiation, the less likely someone is to become a persistent smoker. So that could be one sensible next step for tobacco control in Australia. I want to now turn to my second case study, which illustrates that public health law around the world reflects a process of constant innovation. We don't always see that innovation when we're locked within a particular jurisdiction. Um, So the innovation really only becomes visible when you take a comparative approach. This is a photo I took many years ago in Siberia, not long after the Iron Curtain fell and the country became more accessible to foreigners. This was one of the main highways east. I hope it's improved uh, since that time. Beside the, the roads, small traders sold clothes and they also sold food. And we noticed even back then that Snickers bars were being sold individually at high western prices, sitting there on the tarpaulins beside the road. After decades of the wreckage of capital of communism, capitalism comes to Russia and who gets there first? Snickers. Years later, in Cairo, at one of the consultations that led to advancing the right to health, went for a walk along the Nile, and there it was again. Snickers. Over the past few decades, the forces of globalization have had a tremendous impact on national diets. Global brands have made their way around the world. Coca-Cola in Bangkok, KFC in Cape Town, the office of the WHO. Um, This is what you see, and Sunita, I think you'll recognise this view as well. A couple of blocks away, this is what passes for nutrition in a Manila supermarket. Nutrition power for kids. And this is what passes for healthy drinks in a suburban Jakarta supermarket. Western products have a cachet in some developing countries. I read recently that people were lining up for whole city blocks in Johannesburg for the opening of the first Starbucks south of the, of the Sahara. Very rapid trend towards population weight gain in most countries of the world. The takeaway message from this slide, which gives you Australian data, is that healthy people, uh, sorry, people of healthy weight are now in a minority. On the right-hand tail of the distribution of weight in Australia is morbid obesity, and obesity specialists will tell you that it's like a runaway freight train. This, this slide tells you that in 2012, nearly a quarter of children with obesity had morbid obesity, equivalent to a BMI of 35 at 18 years. These are the findings of a coronial inquest into a 10-year-old boy who died quietly on the, on the way to hospital in a car. He had a, severe, a history of severe obstructive sleep apnea caused by obesity, a history of missed medical appointments. His parents didn't realize how critical the situation was because he was frequently drowsy as a result of obstructive sleep apnea. In Australia, we overwhelmingly look at overweight and obesity as a health problem for the individual concerned. Lobbied by industry, shielded by cheap slogans like the nanny state, governments are ignoring the need for healthy public policies and treating obesity and diet-related diseases as issues of lifestyle medicine, not public policy. Population prevention. Population level prevention, the, the one thing that might save your Medicare entitlements in future is being degraded and scorned. One of the most interesting features of writing Advancing the Right to Health was the opportunity it provided to see what countries are doing in the field of law and public health nutrition. So what's the second most powerful thing that you could do to improve global health after tobacco control? It's an interesting question. There's a powerful argument that it would be to reduce population salt consumption because that will reduce, you know, average blood pressure which will reduce heart disease and stroke and other ailments. In many countries, the vast majority of salt we consume is added during manufacture rather than at the table. So reducing salt consumption either means changing diets, which is notoriously hard, or changing the salt content in food and conventionally food reformulation has been carried out through voluntary processes where you have multi-stakeholder sort of meetings and you know, crisis in confidence about governments and institutions and some would say they've had a gutful of big government and they want less. It's interesting, in 2013 South Africa introduced regulations that simply impose maximum salt levels as Barnaby Joyce was when he was asked about a sugary drinks tax. Bonkers mad was the response that he gave. And stock powders, savory snacks, and potato chips. Argentina has a similar law. In fact, something like, you know, a dozen countries have similar laws that are more narrowly focused on salt in bread. In 2013, Uruguay banned salt shakers in public and private high schools. Montevideo passed a municipal law that requires bars and restaurants to make salt shakers available only upon request. Now, does that sound crazy? Well, in the US, some restaurants are removing salt shakers from restaurant tables voluntarily. In New York City, chain restaurants must display a salt warning sign on menu options with salt that exceeds the menu options whose salt uh, exceeds the recommended daily limit of 2,300 milligrams. Do you remember Barnaby Joyce's reaction to a tax on sugary drinks? In 2014, Mexico introduced a tax of one peso per litre on sugary drinks and that's about a 10% tax. So sale of taxed beverages decreased by 6% in the first year and by 10% in the second year. Other jurisdictions are also experimenting with variety of other ways of addressing overconsumption of sugar. Sugar-sweetened drinks have emerged as a target for public health interventions in the US because about 43% of added sugar intake in the average American diet comes from sugary drinks. For example, in New York City in 2012, Michael Bloomberg imposed a maximum serving size of 16 fluid ounces. That's about 470 millilitres. A maximum size of 16 fluid ounces for sugar-sweetened drinks. Now, that was struck down. That rule was struck down on the basis of separation of powers. Um, So it wasn't successful. But for three years running, legislation to introduce a health warning on sugary drinks has been debated. actually worse than with the game of Russian Roulette. But you wouldn't know that judging by the rhetoric of the large tobacco company, the kind of intervention that is bubbling below the surface. In 2015 San Francisco passed a local ordinance that requires billboards that advertise soda to include a health warning. I included this slide because you're probably digitally worse than with the game of Russian roulette. Bloomberg had asked the US Department of Agriculture, which administers the Supplementary Nutrition Assistance Program, which is called SNAP, Um, food stamps it used to be called. It's now called SNAP. Uh, Had asked if... with the game of Russian roulette. But you wouldn't know that, judging by the rhetoric of the large tobacco companies companies like Philip Morris or British American Tobacco. For example, e-cigarettes, healthier um, we had the luxury of complaining about government rather than enduring the reality of a government that has civic health law as a living thing and it's in a constant process of innov- innovation and experimentation company. CDC reports that e-cigarette use among high school students has skyrocketed by 900% in the report considers. So to my mind, there's no better case study to illustrate the importance and effectiveness of policy introduced in the southern Indian state of Tamil Nadu. And as Sunita told us this morning, um, the two million people, up to half of persistent smokers will... Die prematurely from smoking, smoke free legislation to e cigarettes. And that creates the risk that vaping will occur in environments. Some of you will remember the film The Deer Hunter about the impact of war on uh, Vietnam soldiers. And the film includes. It's a powerful and a disturbing film. But when you think about it, the chance that a persistent smoker has... This report opens by identifying the right to health and its implications for public health regulation. In Australia, we tend not to frame how are actually worse than... Without holding governments to the standards embodied in human rights instruments, and I think it's partly because there's a pushback against human rights in Australia, accepting, of course, free, free speech and the right to engage in abrasive speech which seems to be very popular. But human rights do matter, and they matter most, as Michael Kirby used to say in a slightly different context, when they're the rights of unpopular minorities, when we're talking about people who are vulnerable, discriminated against, who lack voice. It reminds me of something I read in the 2008 World Health Report. The focus of this report was universal health coverage which I'll come to in a moment, but the report makes a very interesting comment. It says, as with other entitlements that are now taken for granted in almost all high-income countries, universal health coverage has generally been struggled for and won by social movements, not spontaneously bestowed by political leaders. Now, human rights and human rights law gives us the language of struggle Gives us the language of aspiration, the struggle to advance the dignity of humanity in many contexts, including health. The right to health imposes on national governments a right, a duty rather, to respect, protect, and fulfil the right. There's been a lot of discussion about what this right requires of governments. Authoritative interpretation of the right identifies a set of obligations of immediate effect. As well as a number of core obligations that arise under the right. In developing country markets, by contrast, it's business as usual. Indonesia is a good example. it's leads me to my first recommendation. If you're interested in global health and in law and health development, then reconnect with human rights law. Things start to look a bit different through the lens of human rights. I mean, what's this little girl doing wandering in the Jakarta traffic. Her minders are probably just out of the picture. See E-cigarettes in a country where smokers may not have easy access to power outlets. I'm going to move now to perhaps the most important theme in the report and that's the concept of universal health coverage. Universal health coverage has really emerged as a unifying concept and a goal for governments and for WHO in its work with governments to advance the right to health. Uh, UHC, as it's called, is also a health target in the sustainable development goals. So universal health coverage is the goal of all people receiving quality health services that meet their needs without exposing them to financial hardship. I want to spend a few minutes to describe how the report illustrates how law can assist governments in moving towards universal health coverage. UHC is often illustrated in terms of this cube with three axes. You can see the population axis right at the bottom. The population axis illustrates the proportion of the population who are covered by a funding mechanism that makes quality health services affordable. So the aim is to extend health services services to more people. The service access illustrates the health services that are made available and are accessible to the population at an affordable price. And so the aim is to include new services in the package and to increase the volume of services that are made available. The cost axis illustrates the proportion of health services that are covered by pooled funds, such as a taxpayer-funded or employer-funded health insurance scheme. And the aim here is to reduce out-of-pocket fees paid by individuals that make health services unaffordable and also, and this point's often forgotten, which suppress demand extremely high prices for healthcare suppress demand, despite those services being sorely needed. So what's law got to do with universal health coverage? The first point is that the quality health services that governments are obliged to provide encompass not only healthcare services in primary uh, care settings and in hospitals, but diagnostic and preventive services as well as public policies. Now, it's easy enough to grasp that um, immunisation and prenatal visits to a doctor or a midwife are important preventive services, but effective legislation for prevention is also a service that governments provide to their populations. Well-crafted legislation can vaccinate entire populations against preventable health risks, such as smoking. And they can reduce the incidence of injuries I snapped this photo out the window of a taxi in Jakarta a few years ago. There's a whole family on a motorcycle, but only the parents are wearing helmets. If you know something about Jakarta traffic, it's enough to, you know, make you concerned. Um, It probably illustrates the lack of affordable child-sized helmets rather than, you know, an absence of parental love, but what it does illustrate is the absence of public health law. In Vietnam, a national helmet law increased helmet use by 99% and avoided 1,500 deaths and 2,500 injuries in its first year of operation. Some public health laws, like motorcycle helmet laws, are prescriptive. We can call them command and control legislation. But the role of law is much broader and it includes the creation of infrastructure that is necessary for effective prevention. So when governments introduce regulatory frameworks for a safe and sustainable food supply, they're engaging in prevention. Same thing is true when governments use legislation to improve health legislation systems for monitoring infectious diseases, for responding to health emergencies. And in Manila, in fact, if you look out the gates, of the Western Pacific region includes priority healthcare services, it also extends to the legal frameworks that ensure that the population has access to essential medicines, vaccines and technologies at prices that are affordable. If we look back at the UHC Cube and now move from the health services themselves to the funding of those services, Funding is an issue that's often been considered the domain of health economists and yet law is central... Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Um, The changing food environment has coincided with uh, regulatory actions are often needed to raise the revenue streams that help to pay for those expanded services. So regulatory frameworks are needed to license the healthcare institutions that provide the services to train and regulate the health workforce. That must also expand if more services are to be provided to more people. And so around the world, you see innovation in the the creation of a health workforce. A nice example of this is the the introduction of a new designation of a NCD nurse, a nurse specializing in non-communicable diseases um, introduced by the government in Tonga. Legislation also plays a vital role in creating institutions. For example, a health insurance commission, or a food and drug authority. And it also plays a role in establishing their legislative mandate to act in the public interest. The report contains a case study from Ghana that illustrates the the role that legislation played in the evolution of Ghana's national health insurance scheme. Ghana's legislation established institutions, it defined entitlements, it dealt with topics like prudential oversight, internal audit and accountability and the handling of complaints. If I turn then to the, from the funding and administration of health services to the challenge of expanding coverage of services to more people. One way that law helps to improve access to services is to prohibit discrimination and to reduce the exclusion of vulnerable groups from the health services that other parts of the population enjoy. When human rights are denied, health rights are also denied. It's not a bad litmus test to bear in mind. Reducing stigma and discrimination were a central part of the legal response to HIV. And in many parts of the world it remains critical for other NCDs like diabetes to reduce the stigma and discrimination. Discrimination is toxic to the right to health because it entrenches exclusion and it creates health inequalities. And so in summary what the the report tries to do is to illustrate law's relationship with universal health coverage through uh, two themes. And the first theme is that law is vital to implementing the public policies that reduce health risks across the population. It's prevention writ largely. Over time industry agrees to reduce salt in particular categories of food. But here is where it gets a part to play in that. I was going to take you through some of the themes of you know, 13 food categories. And those food categories include bread, breakfast cereals, porridges, processed meat, dry soup, point. Um, My final uh, recommendation for those of you who have an interest in the field of health development is to be aware that perhaps the most important framework for health development in the years ahead is going to be the sustainable development goals and the targets that sit in California. While this legislation has stalled at the committee stage, it does show law has a latent but massively important role in achieving the SDG health targets. So in summary, um, this is a report that hugs the WHO data sources fairly closely there are some, you know, top know they surfed under the Golden Gate Bridge, but uh, I discovered that they do. Previously, Michael, ourselves, and our children. Um, I said at the launch of the report that public health law functions as a global good. Your good health is not only good for you; it's good for me, and we can only share. We can you know, all win, we can all gain by sharing knowledge, asked for a rule to be inserted so that recipients of SNAP could not use their entitlements to purchase sugary drinks. They can't use them to purchase alcohol or tobacco, and he wanted to ban the use of SNAP benefits for sugary drinks. Now, this was rejected on the basis that it would be too cumbersome In New Zealand, meanwhile, Auckland Council has dropped sugary drinks from its vending machines, replacing them with health development to you. I believe it is an emerging field and that we can expect to see uh, more, hear more about it in future, Uh, because ultimately, I believe health law does have a small part to play in saving the world. Thank you. What is a no-go zone in a jurisdiction like Australia counts as leadership somewhere else? the health of uh, lots and lots of people, what legislation do you think could, uh, could be introduced? <laughs> um, it's a very good question because this report did not deal with climate change. Um, it was one of the omissions. There were other topics, I suppose, that the report didn't. Um, the report dealt with what the consultation. If you have an interest in law and public health nutrition, and the legal regulation of diet-related risk factors. ...within particular detail. Like, there's not a great deal on alcohol control in the report, and uh, obviously that's an important topic as well. Um, I- I'm not an expert on law and climate change, but but I think the the, the the first point to make in response to your question is that the priority for addressing climate change is to develop... Government structures that are intersectoral. One of the problems with health departments is that the, the technical people in health departments become seized of the challenges and they understand the, the issue and they have very little alternatives. So I wanted to share these examples with you, not because they have, uh, they have all been successful at the present time, but because they illustrate that public health ministries are lost centres within government and they're not the most powerful players. So when it comes to addressing NCDs or uh, meeting the sustainable development goals or acting powerfully to respond to climate change, we need an all-of-government approach. And that just doesn't... One interesting development in the area of diet-related risk factors is the ban on sales of Coca-Cola and Pepsi of Torba in Vanuatu is also proposing a ban on Western food. So it's interesting days and table all the relevant ministries so that you can have a program of action, not some isolated intervention that. I want to move quickly now to the report itself and mention a few of the themes that it covers, I also want to make a couple of recommendations showing a basket, you know, a basket of policies. Many health challenges we face don't have one solution. They have nations for anyone in the room who's interested in the intersection of development and health law. This discussion of health law issues in terms of international human rights. Perhaps it's partly because we've managed to achieve a high standard of health, need to have intersectoral mechanisms, horrible word, but that's a word that WHO uses a lot, and they recommend that countries develop, you know, whether they be commissions or the, 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 the structure of them doesn't really matter. The thing is that they exist. They'll take different forms according to national circumstances. But that's probably the number one priority before you can start as a country to take action on climate change. Hello, uh, my name is Rebecca Byrne. I'm a research fellow here at QUT with the Centre for Research Excellence in the Early Prevention of Obesity in Childhood. Do you have any experience in with writing the report, but otherwise with the WHO code for the marketing of breast milk substitutes, and any thoughts about that being implemented in Australia? It's a really, uh, it's a really difficult issue. Um, because a lot of the, the manufacturers like to portray themselves as providing solutions for for mothers um, so there's a code of conduct on breast milk substitutes and it hasn't been well implemented uh, it needs to be and governments need to to legislate it into their national systems and it's also important for governments in the same way that Article 5.3 guidelines under the FCTC urge governments only to deal with the tobacco industry to the extent necessary to regulate them and other obligations that are to be progressively realised and that brings the abuse of Breast milk substitutes uh, in ways that damage health, and so if you're wanting to get babies and you know young toddlers on a on a strong footing, it's it's an important piece of prevention, obesity prevention, beginning right there. You know illustrates the importance of the life course. But where is her right to physical safety? Where is this little boy's right to an education? WHO issued many years ago, and it hasn't really been followed up. It's constantly referred to in guidelines and in resolutions, and WHO is always exhorting that it be implemented. You know, law has a role to play because sometimes it can come in and just through, with the authority of law, implement something so that it is a mandatory Requirement, and you could argue that there's a there's a role for law to play in implementing the code. Yeah. Prof, um, look, I was just wondering if I mean I was thinking, I guess, about Indigenous communities here in Australia. We're in the icky position of uh, living in a developed region, but often in uh, developing conditions, and that's op- obviously reflected in our our, our health stats. Um, I'm wondering if you, with your work in, with uh, WHO, whether or not you've come across programs or policies that work in other Indigenous communities throughout the, throughout the globe that uh, could easily be transferred or, or something that might work with, within our own communities. And I mean in terms of things like food security and introducing healthy, nutritious food into our communities at a really early age. Um, yeah. Um, I was saying at lunch that one of the most... I'm am I'm a, a lawyer. I'm not a, a. My ex, to the extent that I have any expertise in public health, it's as a as a lawyer coming to public health. So I'm not pretending, by any means, that that law is the answer to everything, or that there is a legislative solution to every public health problem. And so, um, lawyers, I think, need to collaborate uh, in responding to entrenched. Um, in in, in communities where disadvantage is entrenched it's sometimes been said that uh, with Aboriginal communities it's like a a third world population within a first world country and perhaps a development approach is really what you need to 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 take Um, I, I think the role that law plays in reducing health inequalities is one of the grand challenges that we face. It's one of the most difficult issues that we face within the, the, the sort of discipline of public health law. But I also think you need to go back to basics. Um, I was talking to some some colleagues at the University of Sydney the other day. We we're talking about about water. Now, in some Aboriginal outlying towns, uh, kids don't drink water. They drink fizzy drinks. Some drink no water, zero water. All the liquid intake is from sugary drinks. And so not surprisingly, there's, there's no one who doesn't have holes in their teeth. And when you've got bad teeth, then that lead you know, you can't chew stuff and, you know, that affects your diet and your diet affects your weight. And your weight leads to diabetes or whatever. You can see how it is uh, over the life course And what what are the root causes? Well, the root cause is a lack of infrastructure. You know, we don't have a problem with access to quality water at a temperature that's acceptable and appropriate in the north shore of Sydney where I live, but you do in some Aboriginal towns. The health department's very involved in making sure that the water that comes out of the tap is, is bacterially clean, but it might be Forty degrees, it might taste like rust and look terrible, and that's part of the reason why people don't don't drink it. Um, and so I think that a development perspective can help because you go back to basics and you say, well, what is lacking here is infrastructure, and by the way, it's infrastructure that would be present, not absent, if this were a high-income electorate in a city. Uh, That's not a full answer to your question. The question is one of the grand challenges. If it was easy, it would have been solved. I think law has a role to play uh, when it comes, if you just look at that example of of water, you have a fragmentation in the supply of water. It's a local council. Urgencies in ways that are compatible with human rights. And since the concept of universal health cover widely on supply and demand. It's different in Newcastle and Sydney where you have sort of a centralised structure, uh, a water authority. So just delegating everything to every local council is probably not a way to deal systemically with what we know to be uh, water supplies that aren't acceptable uh, don't look, to the design of effective health insurance schemes. Countries take different pathways towards expanding services. And yet, I, I, again, I think you need, um, for that problem, you need some top-down oversight. You need, you need probably resources. You need a mandate. You need to recognize the problem and the structural causes of it. Um, so you know, it's a really good question. I wish I had all the answers. I'm not not suggesting that just prescribing laws is the answer, but in some cases law may be part of the solution. Thanks. Um, This is um, a broader question. So much of uh, global health policy is informed by the global burden of disease studies and the quantitative logic of that. In your mind, what's the relationship between the global burden of disease logic and the human rights framework that's becoming more and more pervasive? I suppose the global burden of disease studies, and there's different methodologies and variations in the statistics that you get, and I'm an expert in none of them, by the way, um, are useful in identifying priorities for example, the, the recognised importance of NCDs over the last decade has certainly been influenced by the Global Burden of Disease Studies. But development funders haven't yet caught up with that, and so there's almost no development funding for NCDs. You know, incredibly small amounts relative to the total budgets that are made available for health development. It's under them. Some targets are health-specific, specific, and improvements in health are crucial to many of the others. Through some utilitarian approach, do the best you can. Um, how does that relate to the right to health? The right to health is, is a bit different because it's, it's, it's aspirational by nature, because resources are not unlimited. What I like about the right to health in human rights language is it, it, it does... That the report doesn't cover, but it's convinced me at least about the importance of health law to the kind of life that we would wish for of of requiring governments to to provide entitlements. And we saw that with HIV. And the fact we haven't seen it with NCDs is one reason why we're not getting (laughs) went about effect, if you like. And secondly, Universal health coverage requires strengthening the building blocks of the health system and law that the different chapters deal with. But I'll skip fairly quickly, I think, to um, a final. So for those of you who are looking for an intellectual challenge that brings meaning and purpose, I do recommend um, law um, to demand more from governments aspirations you know it has a really important normative impact that's why I've emphasized it that's why we you know we could have just said well what are the most important climate change is a great challenge and it will uh, affect the custodian of the right to health and so that was part of the reason my question relates to the question that was asked earlier, but I think I'll still ask it. Um, how do you think small island developing states can use law to address identified as topics that the report should include? So it didn't deal with climate change. Some other topics it didn't deal with. So I have um, real examples of, of this being done successfully, but I think pooling resources and, and using regional organisations uh, is really important to overcoming the lack of economies of scale the isolation the lack of human resources and the fact that small island states get bullied and the fact when things can be really really bad in small island states and no one really hears about it I mean we hear about how you know obesity is a problem in Australia you know in a number of small island states in the Pacific obesity and overweight together at up to 80% of the population. You know, very few people are of healthy weight and, not surprisingly, diabetes can affect up to a third, a third of the population in some small island states. So it's simply beyond the resources, I think, of, of many small island states to to respond, simply because... the. the the health budget already occupies a substantial proportion of the national budget so there's not any spare cash lying around and unless you can create some sort of new revenue stream which is which is why taxes are actually a good idea taxes on tobacco and taxes on sugary drinks but to to deal with some of these other issues like, like quality of the food supply which I know is of interest to you, I think you need to work through the regional organisations. I said this this morning, if 10 small island states adopted a position on, WT, on their WTO obligations and all introduced the same laws, then they wouldn't be picked off and divided and bullied in the way that they are. People don't bully the larger jurisdictions. And by the way, just one example, when when Indonesia won a point against the US in a WTO dispute about uh, flavoured cigarettes, I spoke to some people in the US and I said, well, is the US going to change their law? People just looked at me blankly because it hadn't entered the head of anyone who's an expert in WTO law in the US that the US would actually respond uh, very little traction on the actions of governments as a whole because they are just locked within the health department. The dispute with Indonesia was solved by the US giving them greater access, market access in some unrelated area. And then the, the dispute, the complaint was withdrawn. So th- these things are dealt with as gains by the large happen. It, it requires high-level leadership, political leadership, but it also needs institutional structure to defend themselves in many cases. The only way around that... Is smart use of resources by pooling them at the regional level structures that can sustain action in a way that that brings in or brings to the